Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Zinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Welcome, everyone. We're so happy that you're here for a little glimpse behind the scenes with our podcast recording. This is just an informal fun night with a wonderful guest. We have Esther Kahawaringa. I tried. I'm sorry. You did it. You did it. It's great. (laughs) She's an editor at Little Brown. She's amazing. She's so nice. She's so smart. And we are so happy that she can join us. Thank you so much for making the time. Of course. I'm so excited to be here. Hi, everyone. Hey, we are so happy that you're here. And yeah, it's a great opportunity to get your questions answered by a real live, amazing editor. So we're so happy you're here. Um, Julie, have I missed anything? No, I think you've got it. Okay. So for everyone at home, we are on Zoom and we have a group of writers here with us tonight. So it's a different format. We are going to do some more traditional questions. Then we're going to dive into their questions and back and forth. So a different but exciting format. So we are psyched. This is the first time we've done it like this. Actually, we did it with Melissa Edwards once, I think, too. Mm-hmm. So um, And our 100th yeah. podcast episode, that, that was yes. many more people. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah, so, so check that one out, too. So Esther, tell us, how did you get started in publishing? Yes, that's, I feel like, you know, the age-old question. Um, and I think every editor will always say that their journey is so different. I, before publishing, I was an educator. So um, I worked in schools in Rhode Island and in Los Angeles. And I originally came to New York for grad school. And it was in the midst of grad school that I was taking um, a Latino literature class. And I stumbled upon um, this writer's conference where I connected with um, another editor at Little Brown. And we had an informational interview. And then that shortly led to an internship. And then that led to me in publishing full-time. I realized as much as I love being in the classroom, I wanted to make a larger impact into literature when it comes to books. So I wanted to reach as many kids as possible. So that's kind of why I was like, well, let me get into publishing that and see it from this side. So that's um, a little bit about my journey. Cool. Was it everything you expected? It was totally different, you know? (laughs) I mean, Again, I feel like publishing also in like movies, it's depicted in one way. And then the day to day is very much, especially when you're starting out, you're really working like side by side with your bosses. So, so yeah, I think a few of the things that I didn't realize was how um, just like the, the types of projects you're working on can vary. Everything can be so different. And you're really working with a team, with every single department as an editor. You're seeing really the process of a book from its entirety, which I know a lot of you might know, but it goes from when um, an author is working with an agent and then an agent brings the submission to an editor. And then we go through a process of pitching it to our team, go through so many rounds to get it to acquisitions. And then when we finally get to make that offer, um, then we start working on the process of the book. Um, and then it, again, goes through a whole other editing process. Then once that part's done, 
Then it goes through the design of the book in terms of the layout. Um, and then we walk through with marketing and say, and publicity, like what they're, how they're going to position the book to audiences and retail and consumers. So I think that's one of the things too, that you kind of, um, you like when, once you're inside an editorial, you realize how much you're really steering the ship, so to speak. And you're really seeing a book, not just from like inception, but it's also to the duration, like the life of the book, you're there for it. Yeah, we actually did an event recently called From Submissions to Shelves that talked about that whole process. And it was just so nice to see that all uh, described for everybody because it is a lot more than everyone expects. You know, Mm -hmm. when I got into the industry, I had no idea how many little steps were there, how many people were involved. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that was um, a really interesting thing to learn about. But I think we all go through it and it takes time, right? It does. It does. And I think, I mean, even another thing that is like, you don't realize until you're on the other side of the tables, how many submissions we get. It's, it's, we're most of the time that we're spending, which I'm sure you might've already heard, our editing really doesn't happen on the job. It always happens off hours, whether we're like commuting on trains, you know, prior to COVID and all of this, like, like traveling anywhere we go on our phone or we printed out a copy of a manuscript. It's usually that's when we're getting our bulk of our reading done. And so in that way, the job is kind of nonstop. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of like teaching? Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking, it's like yeah. teaching, like you spend yes. all day running around <laughs> and then you do your work yeah. teaching. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So how many submissions do you get? So on average, how deep is that pile for you? You know, it depends. I feel like, so currently there's a backlog, but it's, it really ranges. I would say it's probably like 10 submissions a week, but that's like every editor will always vary. Some editors will get, you know, more like my, the boss that I report to, she's an editorial director for picture book. She gets about 40 submissions a week. Mm -hmm. So like, and then take that because I also have to read her submissions. So it's not just my 10, it's also her 40. So it's, it's then becomes 50 and then add that to a month. (laughs) So yeah, we try to be as timely as possible, but usually that's when it comes to really like also knowing what's out there so that we can kind of see like what we're reading, um, where it can fit in the market space or where we think, oh, this is a definite need, a definite area um, and how to um, maybe the thing that we're reading can add to that. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And I think it's interesting too, because of course it takes time, but everyone wants you to be thoughtful when you get to theirs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, no. And and I, and I that's one of the things too, is that like, I think part of the reason why we're taking that time too, is because we're like, sometimes like we'll have a submission and, and we'll see potential in it and we'll bring it to editorial. Um, and then we'll, we'll say, but, but we think that there's something similar right now that, that another editor just brought. And then kind of, we have to wait to see because they were, they brought it first in like a few weeks before in terms of how that works out for them. And then we can kind of put ours um, in that space. So there is, there really is that give and take, um, but that's something that also Little Brown particularly, we really pride ourselves on, on just really having intentional responses, whether it is a past um, or, you know, um, like we love this so much, maybe this might be too familiar, but we still want to see more work from this author or this creator. That's definitely happened to me before. 
Yeah. And I think it's interesting for everyone to note that there are a lot of things that have to happen within the house for a book to mm-hmm. be acquired as well. Kind of like how you mentioned that if someone brought something similar first, mm-hmm. it's fair to give them, you know, the first opportunity to buy something mm-hmm. similar. Could you talk a little bit about why one publishing house can't have two very similar books at the same time? Ooh, that's such a great question. <laughs> you know, it's a large reason is because we don't want to cannibalize sales. That's the big point when our sales team is really looking to placement for different accounts for their sales reps. If they see two books um, on the same list of very similar themes, then we don't want ever any book to compete directly with each other. So sometimes when that happens, for example, like we recently acquired two um, that have very similar themes, but we're putting them in different seasons. So that's a way that we kind of mediate that so we can Because obviously we want to show, for example, like if we're talking about like Latino stories, we need the whole breadth of them. We don't just need one type of experience. So it's really being conscientious of like looking at the grid as a whole and kind of figuring out, well, where, where we can fit it into which season. And sometimes because if it, if depending on the project, like if it's a picture book, for example, some illustrators might not necessarily have their sketches on time. And so then that pushes out a book. Some will have them super ahead of time. And so then again, it's like all these different variables at play that I think really speaks to your point about there are all these things that are happening behind doors, but there's always thought behind it. It's never something like we're just going to, you know, put something in here and then hope that it directly competes with it because we want every book to succeed. We have a question from Kayla. Kayla, I'd like to unmute you to ask if that's okay. So I was curious how the seasons worked in publishing. Is it like a spring and winter kind of thing? Or are there four of them? I was just curious about that. Yeah. So that varies by house. Um, So I actually used to be at Disney prior to Little Brown. And Disney used to have um, two seasons. So we would do fall, winter, spring, summer. And at LBYR now we moved to three seasons. So like right in next week, we're launching our fall list. We do fall, then we do winter. Um, but winter kind of incorporates the spring titles and then we do summer and summer is from May through August. And then fall is from September to December. And then winter is January through um, April. So it varies. And and usually the strategy behind that will also be tied to sales. Yeah. For example, they often release women's fiction, beach reads, thrillers yes. in the summer. I think more serious books usually come out fall winter Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah it's it's partly because that's when we can try to find time to do tours so that's when we um, put it in for fall Mm -hmm. (laughs) and a question just on something you mentioned tours yes (laughs) we have heard that that is not really a thing anymore when is it a thing you know so it again that's also especially right now with everything that's happening with the pandemic it's so up in the air but so what that happens is really during focus, when we um, each publisher will launch their season of books, it's kind of how we introduce it. So for net, we have fall season coming out, and it's fall of the following year, so fall twenty one. And so before that, there's conversations being had with all the department heads about which are the titles that are going to um, be called focus. So those are every project is going to get some sort of like marketing behind it, some sort of publicity behind it. Um, but every the type of that will vary depending on what the level of like advance was in terms of was it an was was it an auction situation was it 
Um, is it a debut author? Is there something where we think we can get a huge publicity angle to it? So all of those factors will come into place. Then when we have focus, we have this other conference called sales conference. And that's when our marketing publicity team will then pitch what their plans are for each title of our book. And then within that will be the option of tours. Yeah. So, so I, I will say for a little brown this year, a lot of our tour tours because of the pandemic, they got canceled or they got pushed out to the 2021. Yeah. I was just wondering if authors can submit directly to your house instead of uh, waiting to get an agent. Do you ever go that route where the author submits and then you encourage them afterwards, like, okay, uh, can you, you know, you could look for an agent now that we know your book's going to be published. Does it work that way ever? Yeah. So I will say um, Little Brown, just like the big five houses, they're not open to unsolicited manuscripts, which means they have to come through an agent. That being said, you know, there are always exceptions made. How that happens really just, again, depends on the type of manuscript it is, the type of project. I will say, like, I actually stumbled upon an author and recently and just, um, and then she found an agent and then we were able to, like, acquire something. While I do open myself to it, I will, because it's not uh, an agented manuscript, it usually it ends up in a different folder and might not get a response just because of the amount of submissions that we get. It does, it does also take time, right? The biggest thing that we like to say is like as much as for every other manuscript that we're pouring into, there are other manuscripts that we're, that are then getting delayed. So I think that's one of the things, which is why I love programs like this, right? Cause then we can actually have conversations or we can talk about like our pitches, our ideas, And then even if um, we can do like different, you know, critiques after, but yeah, so that's the unfortunate thing about this business. It's really um, getting that foot in the door, but I feel like having an agent to be your advocate is such a huge win, right? You're having someone who knows directly, has relationships with editors, knows exactly where to put it in your house to which particular house. Mm -hmm. Also, thank you so much. Yeah, that was uh, very Mm -hmm. thorough. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Can you just describe, Esther, what Little Brown represents? Yes. Like what age yes. range? Oh, yes. Um, okay, so Little Brown Books for Young Readers, what I'm a part of is our children's division that is a part of Hachette Book Group. So Hachette Book Group is our like parent company. And then within that, we have Little Brown Adult that does the all adult books. We have Hachette Books, which does also adult, but it's in terms of different genres so Little Brown is more literary and Hachette is very much like more commercial. Then we have a few other ones. We have um, Grand Central Publishing that does Nicholas Sparks. Um, but then we have Little Brown Books for Young Readers. And that's the one that I'm a part of. And we do children from zero to 99, right? <laughs> we want all the lifelong readers. Yeah. So our our mission is because we're a boutique, like a boutique imprint, we only curate, um, I would say, There used to be a number and I'm blanking on it. But essentially what we do is we like to know ourselves as like we have a small list, but we're within a big five house. Therefore, we have the like strength of a strong sales team, a strong marketing publicity team to be able to focus on our titles instead of being like someone like Scholastic or HarperCollins that are huge um, Mm -hmm. and have like hundreds of titles a year. We, we definitely do smaller than that. I would say, I think we do around a hundred 
Don't quote me on that. (laughs) But yeah. Alicia, did you want to ask about sales and marketing teams? Yes. No, I was just giving them a bit of love because I think it's really important to have really strong teams. And I'm passionate about working with people who are super focused on that. Yes, I I agree. I think because, again, like I I think an, an editor will realize you can't do things without every other department. Right. Like I can champion the heck out of my book. But if it doesn't get through, you know, doesn't get that incredible cover, if it doesn't, if we don't get sales to buy in and publicity to be able to find those hooks, then a book can get lost because it is, again, it's a very, especially I think I'm particularly focused on acquiring picture books and graphic novels. And I think in the last, I would say, few years, really picture books has like exploded even more so and as well as graphic novels. So it's always trying to find those unique entry points. and. And that's a large part of my job is to constantly be able to project manage essentially, and then get people excited about it from every stage. I really would like to know, do you recommend copy editors for manuscripts? groups? Yes, we have them too. <laughs> yes, they're so important because I think, well, like, I guess maybe before I answer your question, I'd like to ask you a question. What is your understanding of copy editors and the role they play in your book? Copy editors to me would be someone that goes through and looks for the mechanics, the grammatical, Mm -hmm. commas. Mm -hmm. I think once you are vested into a manuscript, Mm -hmm. which mine has been 10 and a half years in the making and it's gone through quite a few revisions, I think we lose sight of those mechanical things. Like mm-hmm. I write every day mm-hmm. in a PR position for social media, media mm-hmm. releases, but in writing a novel, I just think that that, I mean, I feel a copy editor would see things that I no longer see. Yeah, no, absolutely. So we, we have them um, different departments. We'll call them different things, whether they're production editors or managing editors, But they're essentially, the slight difference is that a production editor, just in case you were curious, looks at also the production of a book. And then managing editors just look at the mechanics as you described it. And and they're so important. I think uh, when it, for like the way, if you were curious what it goes through on, on a publishing process, once I finish working with an author and we lock in the manuscript, um, I'm making no other changes or suggestions to the author. We're it's closed. Then we send that to the copy editor. It's with a transmittal form that goes attached to it because then they are in charge of also getting all of our data into the Library of Congress, which is, I had to do that for Disney and (laughs) it takes a while. So I love our copy editors. And yeah, and so then they really look at, like you said, the mechanics of it. But I remember one time there was a Disney copy editor that the way she described it is she just looks at like the nuances of words and the language of it to really fit to your book. And she like, so that's the way that I, I have just grown to trust them so much and really depend on them because they're, they're kind of my cold reader who gets to see it, um, gets to come in it and look at it for the mechanics. They're not looking at it for content, but they just want to make sure that like, if the syntax we're using, if the words we're using is true to the character that they're reading, they also, for a picture book, they'll look for consistencies or inconsistencies in art. 
um, which is a big thing too, right? Because sometimes you'll, you'll notice, oh no, there's like, I'm working on a, a book about planets right now, um, but they're anthropomorphized planets. And one of the characters has glasses, but has stars in them. And our copy editor caught that on one piece of art, there wasn't stars on the glasses. Mm -hmm. And so again, like the, these are like, they're small things, but they're things at the end of the day that really matter in the hands of reviewers at awards committees. They're, they're, these are the things that people get really nitpicky about. So we, um, I really learned to just trust and depend on them. Obviously, we'll, as editors, we'll do our line edit. And then, but they're the ones that look at the mechanics of it. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that's just a comment. I think that's the first time we've ever really talked about how leaning into edit via the voice of mm -hmm. the character, you know, and that, so that's like such high level editing mm -hmm. um, that you can trust that once you get to a house, they're going to do that for you. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes we hear from people, you know, like, like, like we all freak out about like a typo, <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, and like the more you touch your book and I think that's what Sherry's saying, the more you touch your book, you start like, yes. you're, you're never able to be the editor because you're always the writer mm -hmm. and the writer is always writing. And as you're writing, there's always editing and nothing's perfect because you kind of get in this loop as writers. So, I mean, Esther or Jessica, so everyone's saying how, how perfect should a manuscript be when it goes to the agent and the editor? Hmm. That's a good question. I, so I will say I've seen manuscripts where they're super polished and then, and we'll still make edits on it. I think no manuscript will ever be without any edits. Um, and when I refer to edits, I mean, in terms of the content, like maybe it's like we're changing a beat of the ending or we're adding in an extra beat in the middle um, section. And so, so I think I, I, I've also seen on the other end, manuscripts that I'm like there are things that I think are that really need work in terms of restructuring but I see the seed of something here so what I do um there's a graphic novel series that I acquired like a few months ago but that was in large part because the agent had sent me the submission it was originally a middle grade graphic novel and I was like this there's something here but this needs to be an early reader graphic novel so I was asking the author to not only change the age range for what she was writing in the category, but also really change the story. Um, so I worked on a revision with her. Um, and then after we were able to then acquire it and I brought it to the team and they were all excited. So, so really that's also a part of my job, fully recognizing that like sometimes, yeah, sometimes we won't see something perfect, but if the seed is there, then like, that'll be also the thing that'll motivate me to say, Hey, let's, let's talk about this and let's, let's revise before we bring it. Cause that's always the hardest thing to bring in something to our acquisitions team that isn't fully polished. Well, sometimes that's how we'll lose projects or, or they'll end up passing on it because even though we see the seed, they're going to be reading the manuscript as is, as you turn it into them. So that's why we try to put in our best foot forward as possible. So I've, I've encouraged uh, authors um, that agents have connected me to, and I'll say, I love this, but I, I like, is there, like, are you willing to make a revision here or at least to, to, so we can figure out if we're even on the similar page in terms of vision. Um, that's important too, because I never ever want to make an assumption that an author is thinking the same way that I am, right? 
I love this question from Shannon. Shannon, would you like to ask? Yeah. So I just wanted to hear like a success story that you had, like a book that you got or that you had to fight to get or what, whatever. And where there was a surprise in that or, or something. I just loved, I like to hear those stories of how it goes. Yeah, man. I wish, I wish I actually had it because it came out on Tuesday. But so one of the first things I read for my former boss at Disney was this illustrated chapter book series called Kondo and Kizumi. It's this debut author and this up and coming illustrator. And I read it. And again, like I've said, submissions are crazy, but this one, this agent in particular does really fabulous pitches, like right from their subject line. I was hooked. I was like, I need, what is this? And he had compared it to Frog and Toad. And obviously sometimes like you shouldn't make that kind of a grand gesture. But in this case, I was like, I, I grew up loving Frog and Toad. So I immediately went in and then within like 30 minutes, sent it to my boss and was like, you need to read this. We need to buy this. And we, it became an auction, um, but we won it for three books. And uh both author and illustrator were really incredible to work with. And then I had to leave Disney and or I came over to Little Brown. And then uh, funny enough, the series actually came over to Little Brown. And so in a, like in a twist of fate, I, I got the series back again and it came out on Tuesday and it's just, it's, it's fully illustrated. It's about these two characters who are best friends but they're polar opposites and they find a, a bottle that washes ashore in their island and it has a map and the map says we are not alone. And mm. then they go on all these adventures and it's really great. It's really sweet and funny. Yeah. So that, that's a success story. Um, I will say another one because uh, I really geek out about the production making of a picture book and uh, Mo Willems, he had come out with, the picture book I worked on with him was called Because. It's not, it came out two years ago, but it's about this little girl who has this chance encounter of going to an orchestra and it, when she's really little and it changes her life and she becomes a conductor. And when we worked on this story, we decided to, for the case, to add cloth, a cloth binding to it. Mm -hmm. And the production person came to my desk and was like, called me over and was like, Esther, I need to show you this. And I, I thought I was in trouble. I was like, this production person never calls me to his desk. I, you know, didn't turn something in. And he shows me just the proof of the case. And I immediately like burst into tears because the, we had put the stamp of the girl on the uh, case. And it was just, it was such a beautiful moment. And like, I like still have the case on my desk in my office that I can't go to. <laughs> yeah. So those, those are definitely um, some success stories. Thank you. I appreciate mm -hmm. that. What was, what was the first title called again? The Sorry. first one's called Kondo and Kezumi. It's K-O-N-D-O and Kezumi, K-E-Z-U-M-I. Okay. We have a question from Chris. Are you ready? Okay. So my question is if we're an author illustrator, how much is the illustrator responsible for like the page layout, like where the words go, how big to make spot diagrams? Like when we submit it, do we just make our dummy book and then let them figure out where the words are going to go and how big to make the pictures or how much effort should we put into it to figure out, you know, or should we just put like a, 
you know, do we just put like a illustration and then put the words on it and then let them arrange it how they want to, or how does that work? Yeah, no. So I would definitely, when it's an author illustrator project, it matters to me to see it fully in the layout. It's going to be in book form um, in terms of like making sure the gutter is in there and, and you're intentional with that. It doesn't have to be perfect, but I think when I see a dummy like that, I know that they're like the person behind it has been thinking really about placement. And, and that's the big thing too, because the text won't necessarily flow and, we, and designers um, will eventually mo- end up moving that and, and will sometimes move certain art. But I think if I see it at least as a dummy initially, then I know that like, that the person that I'm working with has an understanding of that. Because um, I think we we come to it at a, at a like at a table and we're both like here like this is their skill right that they bring in that like being an artist being a creator something that like like you know, I can't draw um, I can't illustrate but that's something like knowing that that's what they're coming in with then I'll come in and then we'll we'll shape the story together. Nice, <laughs> great. <laughs> Andrea, would you like to go next? Also, everyone, a round of applause for Esther so far. We are giving her lots of hard questions and she's doing amazing. <laughs> oh, I love it. The silent round of applause. That's so cute. I know. Or like, you know, uh, teacher yeah. mode. Yeah. <laughs> I Esther, I wanted to know if Little Brown had a wish list of subject matter or story themes that it's like, oh, I really wish we would get some of these in our inbox. Definitely. So every editor has a list. I would say, particularly speaking to the picture book list, just because I work closely with the picture book editorial director, we are looking for more Jewish-related picture books. We're looking for, we're always looking for seasonal titles. I think particularly um, when it comes to like winter or uh, Christmas, like in that theme, we're looking for definitely humor books. I think Little Brown is, is very much known for, um, you know, your real literary. And I think it's really that it, it can have literary elements to it. It can have this heartfelt moment, but I think we are looking for just more humor on our list. Yeah. So, and, and I, like, I particularly am looking for diverse stories and diverse creators and illustrators. That's what, that's what I'm particularly looking for. But again, it's wide and varied and it really comes down to like the story itself and the voice really looking at like what's out there. Cause that's one of the things too, which I, I don't know if this has been already shared, but whenever we bring in a title to our acquisitions team, we have to also bring in comparable, comparable titles to what's out in the marketplace. So for example, if I'm bringing in, if you've all read creepy carrots by Aaron Reynolds, yes, it's a great one. That's Simon and Schuster. If I was bringing in something that was also Halloween and foxes, for example, I would most likely probably use that creepy carrots as a comp title because it would, you know, similar like holiday element. It's also a story about animals. So, so that's always good to know whenever you're, you're thinking about your story is kind of think, well, where could it fit in between titles with, within the last, like, two years, last two to three years. Tina, would you like to go next? 
So you mentioned that you took a middle grade novel uh-huh. uh, and then switched it up to be an early reader. And so I'm uh-huh. curious what the decision making process was in making that decision. Was it was it because of the content? Was it because of the voice? But then you also did say that they kind of had to rewrite that. And so I'm curious why it went from middle grade to early reader. Yes. So people said, make it a middle grade and throw all this other content in. So I'm just really. Okay. So you said you've experienced the opposite. Yes. Okay. Okay. So hmm. to, to your first point of your question, the story that I was talking about is about his kid. His name is Reggie and he's a kid penguin the author Jen de Oliveira, she is an elementary school teacher. So when when I saw Reggie, it used to be called Reggie and his and his Bubba. So it was like the stuffed animal. And again, that was her middle grade premise of the series. And I was like, well, when you're in middle school, you don't necessarily carry around stuffed animals, or you don't tell people you do, right? <laughs> and and again, the way that Reggie behaved and saw the world felt very kid-like to me from the very first panel I saw that she drew. And so that, that was why I was like knowing Jen's background and what she was, what her profession was knowing like the core of who Reggie is when I started asking her, like, that's why I love getting on author calls just to see, like, this is kind of like, see, we know what the vision behind it, what's the inspiration, what are, what made them come up with this story? Cause when, when I was talking to her, she was telling me and all I could see was Kid Penguin. I, I couldn't see a middle school penguin. And so that's why I was like, Jen, I think this is incredible. I just think you need to write for the audience that you actually work for. And so she did. Um, and I'm so grateful she trusted me with that because it's shaping up to be something really special, I think. But to your other point about the opposite, there are moments where like sometimes like, and, and actually this is interesting. I, um, there was a submission I was reading and it was about this, um, uh, elementary age girl, but she was experiencing the loss of a family member and the words that was being used in the chapters were like themes and feelings that I think were felt to me like a middle school girl Again, not to say that like elementary age kids can't experience loss, but I think just the types of words that are being chosen are different. And so that's that's always the conversation like I'll have first and, and write down my thoughts. And then once I talk with an author, then we'll kind of see and figure out like, because sometimes an author will say, no, but I, I really like my the age range. And we're like, okay, great. Like I respect that and that needs to stay too. But I think on the other end too is like, if we consider aging up or aging down to do service to the story, I think that could then um, open up possibilities that we might not necessarily have encountered. What's something that you've changed your mind about in your time in the industry? Mm, What do you mean? Anything. Is there anything that you thought would work a certain way and worked another way? or something that you originally liked, but now don't like or vice versa? (laughs) I will say I am, and I don't know if this is necessarily answering your question, but I love reading YA for pleasure. 
I don't necessarily want to edit them. And then that I think is large in part because of my own background in teaching and working with like elementary age, middle school kids. Like I love that age range. And I think usually the creators that are um, working behind it, like I think approach it from like looking at it from a kid perspective. And I think when it comes to the YA space, I've noticed for me in terms of editing it, I think I um, love reading it. Like I think I get lost in the world and in, you know, those YA fantasy worlds, those futuristic worlds that a part of me is like, no, I, I think I'll stick with the realistic contemporary when it comes to editing or I'll stick to the humor. I'll stick to the heartfelt stories. Um, and I just really love picture books in general and um, anything with the visual storytelling aspect. Cause I feel like that's how also so many young people are seeing the world. Now they're seeing the world through images as well as with text. So I just love the idea of pairing the two together that they can really complement each other. I would just, I, I, just a comment. I love how editors talk about books. Like <laughs> you always, no matter who we have on, you guys just take us to a different world. We're just like, oh, you know, it's amazing. So it's such a yeah. privilege to hear you yeah. talk about your process. Yeah. Chris, I actually realized you had mentioned the question about illustrations and where you should have it. And I just thought about it. I um, finished rereading this book called, it's essentially a picture book guide that kind of talks about really how to lay out illustrations. And it's called Reading Picture Books with Children. And it's Megan Dowd Lambert. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Virginia, would you like to ask your question? Quite a while ago, I wrote um, a book for, I I wrote on the um, chat elementary school, but I think even maybe very young elementary school about the issues of foster children with their anger and behavior and how to deal with it. And I'm wondering if there's any kind of a market for that sort of stuff with you guys. Yeah. So I I think also though, to, to peel back that layer, there is the idea of like books that are suited for institutional markets and through educational publishing. And then there's the retail side of publishing. And, and I think Yes, obviously, like I want to see more stories about foster kids. I think that's the premise of Crenshaw by Catherine Applegate, right? So like these stories are definitely needed. It just matters in terms of the narrative hook. If if it leans more towards like this is an educational component kind of story, like that's something that is necessarily work for us just because we are really trying to find narrative storytelling but we definitely do want to see stories again that show every kind of reader. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I see there's someone else who has one like that too. <laughs> Tina. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us when about the first time you saw one of your books on sale. Oof. I I feel like I've took so many friends and like would just be like look it's on display but it wouldn't ever be outward facing so it'd be like inside and I have to like pull it out Mm -hmm. honestly I feel like my greatest moments when it comes to the editorial process isn't necessarily seeing it on sale although it is it's incredible like I love seeing it out in the world but it's either when I see it in the hands of a young reader or when an author creator like has turned back a revision and it's like 10 times more than I ever thought it would be. And 
where they've taken their writing or their art to another level, that's the kind of stuff that to me is like, oh, that that's why I do this. So, so yeah, I think it, it, it's nice to geek out to see it. But I think if it's like in the hands of a little reader on a train or at the park or a creator on the other end telling me, oh, I finally figured this out. And I'm like, fantastic. We, you know, like we both like, he trusted me to really, you know, take a project that you have invested so much more like of your time. Um, and I just have come alongside you that that's also really rewarding to me. Aww. <laughs> that's really sweet. What's something you wish writers knew about things on our side of the desk? I think, and, and this is one of the things I think we've talked about Jessica is, is that like, knowing that like as equally as passionate as like you are about your project we're also equally as passionate on the other side I think the only thing is that like there's a like we're also just balancing our other projects um and so I think that's the thing too is knowing that like I think having just the best intentions I think that's the biggest thing because it is it it's it's not like Usually an author will only correspond with an editor, but an editor will be corresponding with probably around 10 departments, right? And so, and within that, with every project, like I end up acquiring, um, there'll probably be a different designer. It won't be the same designer that'll follow through with every project. It won't be the same copy editor. It won't be the same production person. So that also means just like learning to just work with everybody on the team. So, yeah, so I think that's the, that's the thing too, is knowing that like, I, I mean, there's so many children's books editors that I've ran into and we all share the same mission of like wanting to see great books out there for young people. And so, yeah, so we're your biggest champions. Here's a sweet question. Maria says she can't ask it because she's with her baby, which yay. Hello to Maria and baby. <laughs> um, how important is conflict in picture books? Do you need conflict in a lyrical, poetic, or concept type picture book? Mm-hmm. Do they mean conflict in terms of tension? Probably. Okay. I think so with that question. <laughs> yeah. Well, 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 because so I asked that just because I feel like there's yeah. like I I feel like when people think of the word conflict, they automatically assume it needs to be something negative. And I don't think that necessarily is the case. That's why I think to me, I call it just points of tension because it, it, there has to be, I think, room for the character to grow in some way, whether it's like, you know, really small or like, like I'm, I'm trying to think of something I've read recently. Like, let, let's take Alma by Juana Martinez Neal. So that story is about this girl is a really long last name. And you kind of know at the very onset that she's, doesn't like having her really long last name. And then you see the whole entire story is about a celebration of her family. And so there isn't like, if I'm remembering correctly, within the middle section, there isn't necessarily that conflict. It started up at the beginning, but at the whole of it is, is, is she's really owning her own name. So that that's why I think like when it comes to a lyrical story, like, there is a lot that we have at Little Brown that have those points of tension that don't necessarily have like, you know, somebody dying or, or something traumatic happening. Like, but it's, but it's, 
something within it that is allowing the character to grow or a truth to come out. And that's why we will acquire something. Can you tell us just what your number one tip for writers is? Yeah, I think my number one tip is to write, write what you know. I guess that's the best in, in terms of, and I'm, I'm sure that must also be an advice that's tossed out a lot. I, I think writers are so brave and I think we can notice that. And that's why I think I come back to writing what you know when, when you're writing either the emotions of an experience you felt or from your childhood. And I think some of, some of the like strongest books out there are because authors really put themselves out there. And, and again, it is, it's vulnerable and it's brave and I commend you all. But I think that's something that like we, we owe our young people. I think that they deserve to have books that are honest with them, that are showing them new truths about themselves, about communities. And, and I feel like there's, there's so much more room to tell stories, right? We're always going to need stories. And, and that's why I love um, what I do. And I love, especially with children's picture books, like they're going to transcend whether it's a kid carrying around or they're reading it at school or they're reading it with a parent or a caregiver. Like, I think that's why to me, it's like, if you, if you write up from a place of, oh, this, this is a truth that I've experienced or something that I've wrestled with or something that I've questioned, um, that's going to pour out and it's, and I'm going to be able to see it in the text or in the art. Oh, it was such a great place to end. That was <laughs> such a beautiful place to end. I loved it so much. Thank you so much, Esther. Of course. And, and all of you guys, you know, here with us, thank you for like, you know, like all those great questions were amazing. I love how we can kind of flow through conversation, um, through your ideas. You guys, I'm so pleased to introduce um, Valentina Woodson to you. Valentina has been with us, I think, almost two months now. Yeah. Um, I know that she's been fielding emails and she's going to take on a whole host of new cool responsibilities. Valentina, do you want to tell them a little bit about some of these things? Sure. Hi, everybody. Um, you can call me Valentina. You can call me Val. Julie was saying at any point in time, if you send an email, more than likely you're, <laughs> you're talking to me. But I just wanted to say that uh, upcoming, I'm going to be doing the program for writing accountability coaching, small workshops with agents and editors, and I'm going to be doing the holiday events. I'm super excited, especially about the accountability, because that's something that we've all seen that a lot of writers need help with. Um, I feel like it'd be a lot better to have somebody in your corner who you know is going to be there for you and, you know, give you a call, check up, make sure you didn't hit a roadblock and you're now just sitting in a puddle crying. <laughs> you can't get on with the manuscript when you really just need somebody else who's there for you. Writing's a solitary thing. Um, sometimes it can be a little lonely too. So I'm just ready to jump in and help you all and let's get this going. Yay. And Julie, I loved how you described it this morning, how if an app tells you to do something, you're like, ah, F off. But if a person is like, hey, it's time for you to do this work, you're much more likely to do the work. Especially if the person's nice, you know? I don't know. I really love this new format. I love seeing all of your faces and pretending we're in a living room or a coffee shop hanging out together. I think it's a really nice, cozy thing to do. And I appreciate that we can do this in addition to our giant events as well. And we're kind of like gearing up for Christmas and the holiday season and ways to get together and support writers mm -hmm. during that time. 
So it's going to be, I think, a great end of the year. So we're so excited to have you all with us. Yes, we're here to keep you cheerful, even if the world outside is not cheerful. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) yes, Esther, thank you so much. This was so amazing. Thanks, 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 all. Okay, I loved it. Oh, before (laughs) I forget, where can we find you online? Yes. So I'm on Twitter. Gaha means box. And it's C-A-J-A, four letters of my last name, means box. And yeah, hopefully I saw somebody on the comments said was on, on picture book chat and I was not because I <laughs> was too busy with work today and I'm so bummed, but I'll, I'll scroll through it. But yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, everyone. Okay. Have right. a good rest Bye. of your night. <laughs> Bye. Thank you. Bye everybody. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. And not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.